So again, Psalm uh, 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our God and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Well, this is the word of our Lord. My uh, daughter and I took a trip to uh, Seattle a long time ago, and uh, there's a factory there that's actually rather unique. It's a a factory uh, that makes chocolate. Uh, But what's unique about this factory is that they have uh, the ability uh, to start with just cocoa beans, and from beans to make the finished product of uh, chocolate in a variety of shapes and flavors. And apparently, that's a rare thing. Uh, Most uh, candy makers start with uh, bars of chocolate. They don't start with plain cocoa beans, but uh, this factory uh, under one roof has the ability to go from, as they say, uh, from bean to bar. Apparently, there's just uh, four or five other factories in the nation that are able to do that. I think about that because the Bible teaches us that uh, God is uniquely in charge of our lives from uh, from beginning to end. He knows how to control the process of our lives. I think on this, he, he knows how to create humans and he knows how to create the world in which humans live. He knows how to preserve the lives of humans. And he uh, knows how to do this and does this, whether they acknowledge him or not. Uh, Furthermore, God knows how to uh, transform them into his adopted children by the power of the gospel. And as a perfect father, uh, he knows how to care for and provide for these saints all throughout their Christian life. He knows how to care for them amidst their afflictions and their sufferings even. 
He knows how to grow their faith. He even knows how to keep all of his promises to them, uh, like resurrecting their bodies at the end and fellowshipping with them for all eternity. You see what I mean? God knows how to control the process of caring for us, providing for us, bringing his promises to completion. Psalm 147 reminds us of this, that God is in control from beginning to end, which means that even when we're desperately broken, it is still fitting, suitable, appropriate to praise our God. This psalm has a a, a bit of a working order to it, a a structure that seems in a way a bit uh, mechanical. There are uh, three sections to this psalm, three uh, pieces of instruction that the psalmist has. And each of those pieces of instruction are followed by a rationale for why you should follow that instruction. Uh, And then at the very end of that rationale, three times, uh, the psalmist or the poet tells us the kind of person that God has in mind. And so there's instruction and a rationale for instruction, uh, and then uh, the poet describes the kind of person for whom the instruction is directed. And we see these three cycles uh, happen throughout this psalm, and, and these three cycles of instruction and rationale, they seem to build to a crescendo. There's a, a slow intensification of an idea that with each cycle builds on the cycle before it, and I need to explain uh, how that works. The first cycle tells us that God is a God of care for the humble. Verse 3 says he binds up their wounds. And in the second cycle, uh, God uh, tells us that, that he is a God of provision for those who fear him. He makes grass grow on the hills. And then at the very end, the third cycle tells us that God is a God of fulfillment, keeps his promises to those who trust his word. He sends out his command to the earth. And so he's in control, Psalm 147 tells us, from beginning to end, which means that even when we're desperately broken, it's still fitting to praise God. Let's begin at the beginning with this first cycle, uh, that God is a God of care for the humble, verses 1 through 6. God is a God of care for the humble. Psalm 147 opens with a rather subtle understatement. You see in verse 1, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. And then a song of praise is fitting, is suitable. Well, you see what the poet is doing here. The poet is beginning with a truth that is extraordinarily obvious. Of course it is good to sing praises to God. Of course it is fitting to offer to him a song of praise. Now, uh, nobody ought to doubt this, but the poet is deliberately understating the case. Now, we could say that this is evidence of a, of a literary device, that that's what, uh, that's what the poet is doing. It would be uh, similar to uh, going to an extraordinary con- uh, concert, listening to a remarkable piece of music played by uh, perfect, uh, excellent musicians perfectly. And uh, while the applause is uh, rapturous, people standing uh, and clapping their hands, uh, you look to the person next to you and you say, isn't that just amazing? And the person looks back to you and says... That's so-so. It's okay. It's an understatement here. Right in verse 1 of Psalm 147. It is good to sing praises to our God. Of course it's good. 
A song of praise is fitting? Of course a song of praise is fitting. It's a tremendous understatement. Why state the obvious? Well, the poet isn't merely being literary. The reason the poet is saying what he's saying with the tone with which he's saying it is that there are many in the poet's audience who are actually looking for reasons to praise God and having a difficult time to find any. Have you ever felt that way? The poet understands that things are not well in the city. To some, this uh, language might indicate that the psalm was written during the exile, and so it's a very, very sad time indeed. Uh, We have no way of knowing if the audience is a Jerusalem audience or an audience that is in exile in uh, Babylon. We don't know, but whether in Jerusalem or Babylon, the focal point is the character of God that is true for all time. Because all of us here know that sometimes we are so wearied with life, we really need to look hard for reasons to praise him. And what the poet says, first of all, is that God knows how to care for his children, even in terrible circumstances. It is still fitting to praise our God, the poet says. Verse 2, the the city of Jerusalem itself, the corporate body of the people is in some state of uh, disrepair, either uh, from outside forces or uh, maybe from sin inside that corporate body. But God cares about his corporate body, the place of a special presence, and he will build up that body, says the poet. Also in verse 2, there are outcasts of Israel, people who belong in the city or who were once in the city but have been for whatever reason kept away. But God cares for his people who have been driven away, relationally isolated, and he will rejoin them to that body. And in verse 3, there are brokenhearted people in the poet's audience. I think this is a reference to emotional suffering. People who are literally smashed. They're flattened people. The word that is used for broken hearted. The word heart doesn't show up. It's just the word broken. And it's, and it's a, a, a nautical word. It's a word that would apply to a ship that has smashed against the rocks and been shattered. But God, he, he knows how to care for shattered people. He cares about his children who are broken. And then also in in verse 3, there are uh, physical ailments and injuries in the poet's audience in need of uh, dressing for their wounds. And God is a God who cares for his injured children who need a detail-oriented physician to bind up their uh, various wounds. And so, you see, even, even when it's hard to find a reason to sing praises to God, it's always fitting to praise him because he is a God of care. You know, there's an illustration of this before this cycle uh, rotates on to the next cycle, and it's in verse 4. The poet says that God has determined the number of the stars. He knows how many there are, and he's actually named each one. He gives to all of them their name. How spectacular that is. We don't even know how many stars there are. He knows the number. And he knows them individually, naming them. And so do you think that God is then unable to care for you? 
that your troubles and your circumstances have placed you beyond his notice. He who knows every star and has named them. And the poet says that his understanding is beyond measure. He is abundant in power. And do you still think that he doesn't care for you? May you not think that too long. The poet summarizes by telling us that God is especially positioned to do what? Verse 6, to lift up the humble. That word humble in Hebrew, it always has a very broad meaning. It could refer to affliction, someone who is afflicted or uh, someone who is literally bent over in suffering. But that's not how the ESV Bible translates it, nor the King James, nor the NIV. And I think that they're right. Humble here actually refers to an attitude, an attitude of the believer. It takes humility to praise God in difficult circumstances. Why? It takes humility to acknowledge your need and to rely on God alone to meet that need. You see, as Christians, we often believe that God is only worth praising if all the hardships are gone. And if the hardships are present, then it's not the time to praise God. We're still waiting for the hardships to be removed. Perhaps his corporate body is struggling. His church is hurting as a body. Perhaps uh, an individual is uh, struggling with relationships. All of their relationships seem at the present to be distant ones or weak ones. Or it could be that individual hearts are broken, shattered, or bodies are sick, terminally ill. The poet says it is good and fitting to sing a song of praise. For he is a God of care. Humble yourself, the poet says, and know that he will care for you. Most likely not according to your own timing. But he'll care for you according to his own timing. For his own glory. And so it's good and fitting to sing praises to him. And so you you see this first cycle that that spins in verses 1 through 6, that God is a God of care for the humble. But in verses 7 through 11, the next cycle uh, comes fast. He's a God uh, not only of care for the humble, he's also a God of provision for those who fear him. As we see that God is in control from beginning to end, that even when we're desperately broken, it's fitting to praise our God, we're looking for evidence of that. And so the poet has told us that God knows how to care for us. And now the poet is going to tell us that God knows how to provide for us. I'd like for you to notice that the imagery of verses 7 through 11, if you stand back just a little bit, the imagery of verses 7 through 11 is mostly about growth. Look at verse 8. God covers the heavens with clouds. Well, of course he does, but why does he do that? The poet tells us, because he's preparing rain for the earth. And then when it rains, God will make grass grow on the hills. You, 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 you see that provision for that which it is required for growth. And the same then applies to the beast of the field, that God feeds them their food. And then the young ravens that cry, most likely from hunger, God feeds them as well. Now, this, of course, is not a new a habit of God's. 
He's been sustaining the created world ever since the beginning. And we're to take comfort in this by acknowledging that ultimately God doesn't really need us, does he, to keep the world moving? To sustain the world? He doesn't need us. He simply does it. He himself providing everything that creation needs, not just to continue statically, but to grow and to multiply. And so in verse 10, notice what the image uh, switches to. The image changes from nature to war, but there's still a connection here. The theme of growth is still in verse 10. Verse 10 says, his delight is not on the strength of the horse. That seems likely to be a reference to a war horse. He, his delight is not on the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. Strange expression, but also probably refers to war, a soldier uh, engaged in battle. Why the war imagery on the heels of nature uh, imagery? I suspect the answer is uh, this, that nations go to war for what reason? To provide for themselves. The enemy is a threat somehow to vital needs to the nation's growth. And war is a way that that nation guarantees that they will survive and flourish. Well, now we're beginning to see what the poet is after. Just as God is a God of care in times of distress, he's also a God of provision. And he will be the one who provides for our ordinary needs. You see, care in the first part of the psalm is about uh, pressing needs or needs under duress or in affliction. But here in this cycle, God is talking about uh, everyday provision, and his provision is about a constant, ordinary upkeep and maintenance. And just as the humble person is able to acknowledge their need before God and wait on him for his care in that particular need, in verse 11, it's the one who fears God who is able to place their hope not in their own provision, but in the provision of God. Not in their own strength, but in the strength of God. It's the the humble one who knows that God is a God of care. It's the one who fears God that knows that God is a God of provision. What is meant, do you think, by this word fear? This fear refers to a special reverence and awe and, and dependence upon God. There actually is a very good illustration of this, numerous illustrations, but, uh, but a very good illustration of this in the life of Elisha. You'll recall that the king of Syria uh, sends uh, horses and chariots and a great army to seize the prophet Elisha. And Elisha didn't worry He was calm, and we see that he's calm because his servant next to him was utterly terrified. And Elisha says to his servant Gehazi, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha asked God to open Gehazi's eyes, that he might be able to see what Elisha sees. And when Gehazi opens his eyes, the servant of Elisha sees uh, that the mountain is full of horses and chariots and fire all around them. The host of the Lord there to provide for them. And this is, I think, why David says in a different psalm, Psalm 34. David says this. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and they taste and see that the Lord is good. 
The one who fears God is the one who understands that God is the one in whom they can depend on, count on. In Psalm 147, to fear God is to trust his resources more than your own resources. The poet wants us to be in such awe of God that all of our resources, the strength of the horse, the legs of a man, our jobs, our bank accounts, our career, our morals, all of our resources are placed in submission to his resources. Notice the promise of verse 11, that God takes pleasure in those who depend upon him. And those who depend upon him have hope that will not disappoint. For he is a God of provision. And so you see what what the poet is doing here. uh, Very creatively and beautifully guided by the Holy Spirit. uh, Building the idea uh, that uh, God is uh, with us from beginning to end. And so it is perfectly fitting for us to praise him. He's a God of care for the humble. And a God of provision for those who fear him. And finally, beginning at verse 12. Almost as if the poet arises to a climax, God is a God of fulfillment to those who know his word. In this section, the poet really, beginning at verse 12, he seems to take a tone that's slightly different, and I'd like for you to notice it. Look first at verse 1. The poet says, it is good to sing praises to our God. And then notice in verse 7, make melody to our God on the lyre. There's uh, a connectionalism between the poet and the poet's audience. It's good to sing praises to our God, verse 1, make melody to our God on the lyre, verse 7. But in verse 12, look what he does. He says, praise your God, O Zion. And here the poet seems to uh, separate himself from his audience. It's like a, a king addressing all of his inhabitants directly. Praise your God, O inhabitants of the city. And so the poet says to us, praise your God, all those who profess faith in Christ Jesus. The poet stands above them, is elevated above them, uh, almost like he is uh, uh, a a great director of all things, superintending what is happening in the world, but if not superintending, noticing how God works from on high. And so the poet speaks above them, and he sees beneath him in verse 13 the gates of of the city, and the poet's eyes scan and he sees in verse 14 the very borders of the city. He sees the snow like wool blanketing the land in verse 16. He sees the entire length of the river frozen and then blown back into motion by God in verse 18. And he also sees the other nations that are around the edges of the boundary because he knows that God has not dwelt, dealt with those nations the way he has dealt with the inhabitants of his own nation in verse 20. And so from above, the poet is given a vision of God's working in the world. And he says, praise your God. You see, the center of the poet's vision is made abundantly clear. He sees God's words running swiftly across the earth in verse 15. 
He sees God's words. Everything that happens in these few verses, verses 13 through 19, they happen because of a speaking God, an acting God, a revealing God. He strengthens the city gates. He blesses children. He makes peace. He fills silos with food. He gives snow, ice, water, all by his word. This power of the word seems to me to be summarized in verse 19 when the poet says that God's words are his statutes and his rules. That combination is important. His statues are his intended plans, almost like his, his blueprint, his statutes, his blueprint, his prescription. And then his rules are actually his judgments, uh, those, those uh, uh, guidances in which he, he judges us at every step of the way to make sure that his plans, they're followed. And so we can, we can go back to that factory illustration, can't we? God's word is his plan how he orders all things. And then um, as, uh, as we uh, move along God's factory floor, uh, the quality control assessment is done by his judgments. He judges that which is pleasing to him and that which is displeasing to him, asserts ownership over the, uh, so to speak, product as it makes its way through the factory. And we know uh, that uh, this is God's good care for us. He has ordered our lives from beginning to end. And he will bring his plan to its intended completion exactly as he desires. That's what the poet shows us. The poet seems to be making one thing very clear. God's holy word, God's promises, well... They run swiftly across the earth and nobody can stand against them. God's promises are unstoppable. That's what the poet wants us to see. And this is the preparatory vision for Jesus, is it not? Of course, we know that Jesus is the true, a good Samaritan who nurses wounds, the great physician who heals the sinner's soul, the God who cares. And we know that Jesus is uh, not uh, only the great physician, Jesus is the great provider. He feeds us body and soul, not only in our present day, but in all eternity. He is the God who provides. But here in Psalm 147, Jesus is that swiftly running and unstoppable word, the promise that is kept, the one by whom and through whom all of God's promises are brought to fruition. And so the climax of the psalm is not that my earthly afflictions are patched up, that my suffering stops. I'm called to humble myself and to trust God's power and understanding to care for me. Nor is the climax of the psalm uh, that my uh, daily provision is met. Sometimes those daily provisions seem to be uh, unmet. But I'm called to fear him with a life of dependence upon his strength for my survival. Not my strength for my survival. But then the very climax is that the word of the gospel. The word of promise. The covenant of grace. It is unbreakable. It is unstoppable. And will bring to completion God's plan to draw to himself a healed people, an eternally provided for people, a people who have life and life abundantly. Now, 
It was the humble person who was cared for. And it was the one who fears God who is provided for. Now it is the one who knows and trusts God's word, who sees the God who fulfills his promises. Even while the rest of the world, verse 20, even while others do not know his rules. The one who trusts God's word is the one who responds appropriately with the acclamation at the very end of the psalm, the last words of the psalm. The one who trusts God's word is the one who can say, praise the Lord. That's how the psalm ends. The God of care, he cares for our pressing needs better than we can care for ourselves. A humble heart is comforted by this and sings praises to God. And he is the God of provision. He provides for our everyday needs. And so a heart that is awed by God realizes this and makes a melody of thanksgiving to him. And the God of fulfillment brings all of, uh, brings all of their trust and dependence before God. And they lay those before God's plans. And they trust that he will complete that which he has begun as he intended. And so a heart that knows and trusts God's word is a heart that is able to praise God. His word tells us that he is in control from beginning to end, which means that even even when we're desperately broken, he is still our God, and it is fitting to praise him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need this reminder and we will not be ashamed that we need this reminder. So good is your grace. It is fitting to praise you. Would you help us to do so? In the name of our Jesus, we come. Amen.